The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Good afternoon, good evening and good night. I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his hairstylist Mark Hadley, which if you've seen Ben McKechn is no mean feat. <laughs> Welcome to episode 109 of The Big Picture for the week beginning May 29. And coming up on today's show, we've got the director of The Shack, Stuart Hazeldean. We also have a new Australian drama that explores the personal impact of sexual abuse. And Ben sails the red carpet for his Pirates of the Caribbean 5 review. Wow, that's quite a mixed bag of a program. <laughs> Gentlemen, g'day Sam. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello, mate. How are you doing? All right? Oh, I'm loving being here with you. Ah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got no response to that apart from ah. Oh. <laughs> I'm loving being here with our national audience. Um, for those people who may not realise, we didn't jump the shark so much as the state borders. And the big picture has actually now become a national program. We're adding cities as we go along. So welcome to everyone. There may have been some sharks in the rivers that uh, we crossed to get into those cities. It's <laughs> true. So we could have jumped the shark. Okay, but yeah, we could talk about sharks, or we could possibly talk about, about something else. Right? Okay, what, what's coming up next, Sam? Yeah, we tell us about what's in movies, Ben. Oh yeah, what's coming up yeah, next yeah. is me. Yeah, <laughs> telling us what's going on at cinemas. Uh, what opened last Thursday at cinemas? The Shack. We will be speaking with Stuart Hazeldean, the director of the show, uh, director of The Shack, later in the program. But I reviewed The Shack on the show last week. Go to the bigpicturewebsite.com for my lowdown on this movie. Highly controversial Christian book. Uh, in, in a nutshell, I think those that love the book are going to like the movie. Those that didn't, won't. Opening this Thursday, an entirely different kettle of fish, Wonder Woman. Mm. Wonder Woman has her own blockbuster superhero iteration finally up on screen. Israeli supermodel Gail Gatto, who was introduced as his character in Batman vs. Superman, is playing Wonder Woman in her own movie. We'll have the review on the show next week. And later in this program, though, gentlemen, my top five Wonder Women list. <laughs> All right. That's coming. And what about the small screen, Mark? Okay, well, look, it's very unusual to see original TV these days, particularly from Channel 9. You know, there's a bit of a dig there, but the truth is I think they've done it because next Monday night, June 5, True Stories with Hamish and Andy. Hamish begins. and Andy? Now, Hamish and Andy's not a new enough thing. I mean, they're fun, funny enough guys, but this is what they're going to do. They're, the storytellers are just ordinary Australians telling their stories to Hamish and Andy. And while they're telling the story, the camera cuts to actors recreating the whole story. Okay, so it might be that story, you know, that everyone has about mm. their life that's a particularly funny one. Actors. Famous Australian actors are going to be dropping in to recreate your stories. Well, I'm kind of interested in this, okay? So oh, that... my story is going to be on there. I'm well, looking forward to that. I wonder who's going to play me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, also, only one more sleep to go to ruthless pragmatism, manipulation, and power. What could that possibly be? House of Cards Season oh. 5 is returning House Netflix of Cards May is back. 30. Yes. Netflix May 30, people. Tomorrow night, House of Cards Season 5. I don't know what more to say. Kevin Spacey, Robin Wright, um, lots of dastardly acts in the White House. Excellent work. Would Go you say that if anyone who hasn't seen House of Cards seasons one to four should even bother with jumping into season five, you'd have to go back. Oh, right? I'd go back and I'd see seasons one to four, but then I'd go back before that and see The West Wing. Only <laughs> 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 because to balance the two out, The West Wing is the light, and House of Cards. Yeah, it's is pretty the dark. House of Cards. Yeah. All right. Some true or false trivia for us. Uh, yeah. Ben. So very soon, Mark's going to be uh, in our What Your Kids Are Watching review segment this week, talking about a series of unfortunate events. Another Netflix program. Mm. Um, 
in this new series, star in this new series, Neil Patrick Harris plays the dastardly Count Olaf in a series of unfortunate events. Now, most people should know if they grew up in the eighties that Neil Patrick Harris came to fame as Doogie Howser, yes, the sixteen-year-old medical child prodigy on this TV series that actually blew up. Oh no, it was more in the early nineties, sorry, than the than the eighties. Doogie Howser, Neil Patrick Harris became an instant star. So enduring was the character of Doogie Howser that in 2008, Neil Patrick Harris was asked to appear in a famous brand in a famous brand name's advertisement as that particular character. So here's the true or false. Which ad did Neil Patrick Harris appear in in 2008 as Doogie Howser? Was it promoting Coke? Was it promoting Calvin Klein underwear, Old Spice deodorant, or Dunkin' Donuts? Did Doogie oh, Howser wow. flog Coca-Cola, Calvin Klein underwear, Old Spice deodorant, or Dunkin' Donuts back mm. in 2008? And, and he was older. He's heaps older. And he, was, he was no longer a child prodigy. He was yeah. an, an aging middle... Anyway. Keen to find out. I will tell you more after we talk about this. Well, this week in What Your Kids Are Watching, as we just mentioned, we take a trip over to the streaming service Netflix to see what it's turning out exclusively for the youngest members of your family. And we found out murder, mayhem, man-eating pythons, and a truly psychopathic villain. Sound like something that your family might love? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What? That's right. <laughs> Seriously, I, I think so. Well, <laughs> yes, as, as Mark just said, he Explain thinks... Explain yourself soon, Mark. A series of unfortunate events might actually provide a healthy way of looking at life. I am Count Olaf, your new guardian. You know what this is? It looks like a list. Wrong! It's a list. A list of chores. We know you're just trying to steal our parents' fortune. We have to get out of this wretched place. Go back in the house. Where it's safer and strangers can't get you. Strangers? Where? Now, now, Mark, uh, Netflix has um, created this new series, but I think a lot of people might not be aware of the background of a series of unfortunate events. It's based on a book series, isn't it? That's right. Okay, so a series of unfortunate events is a series of 13 children's novels by a Lemony Snicket, okay, which is really the pen name of author Daniel Handler. Oh, that's now, a fake name, Lemony yeah, Snicket. Yeah, Lemony Snicket's right, a fake right. name. So, <laughs> yeah. which follow, and it follows the turbulent life of Violet, Klaus, and Sonny Baudelaire after their parents' death in a fire. Uh, the key villain is... Is Count Olaf, who's trying to get his hands on the Baudelaire fortune, so he keeps trying to pass himself off as their nearest relative to either, you know, uh, take care of them and thereby get the money, or sometimes even try and marry one of the key characters. It's been done famously well as a film when Count Olaf was played by Jim Carrey. Oh, I really liked that yeah, movie. Yeah, it was a fantastic mm-hmm. film. Yeah. And the new TV series exclusive to Netflix now stars Neil Patrick Harris, as we said earlier. You might know him from How I Met Your Mother. That's mm. probably a bit more recent. Yes. Uh, as The Count. The film wrapped the first three unfortunate books together. The TV series takes two one-hour episodes to cover each of the books. So we're looking basically about 26 episodes ahead. Now, it's only the first one that basically is on series uh, on Netflix now, the first series. Mark, what kind of age group is this aiming at? Sam mentioned at the start that this is seemingly pitched at a family audience, but he listed off the, the some of the content that's in this, and some of that includes the children's parents dying of fire, and every episode is Count Olaf trying to get them, and that's a polite word for what he's trying to do to them. Who, like, who, what, who is this for? Well, it's actually pretty fun viewing, okay? So I wouldn't have any trouble putting uh, primary school age kids. You know, into, yeah? in front of it. Yeah, it's actually pretty fun. It's kind of like... Even though it's got murder, mayhem, man-eating pythons? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah that's what man-eating I said. Man-eating pythons? It, it's, it's very much like kind of Roald Dahl. 
Right. Okay. So, I mean, there's lots of crazy, scary things that happen in the BFG or that happen or in the witches. witches or mm-hmm. ja- even James and the Giant Peach. Okay? Yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is yeah. a little bit weird. Okay. but So, it's not really that scary. Um, it's also basically about the kids always using their special abilities to find a way out of the trap that Count Olaf has sort of set for them. There's also lots of physical comedy. Neil Patrick Harris is great in this role. So, is it like Home Alone? Yeah. Every episode, just a little bit darker. You've got it. Although You've got that it. was pretty dark, Home Yeah, but it's look, what it has is a decidedly negative view of people and life, and I think this is kind of helpful. Are you saying you want your kids to think the world's a bad place? How is that that helpful to think a negative view of people and life? That's right. Thanks for going there. I'm a bad parent, and now we just declared it on national (laughs) radio. Mark, that's not what we're saying. Don't take such offense, but yeah, that was what we were saying. Look, I think a series of unfortunate events is no more negative, as I said, than than some kids' views, okay? But it's realistic, you see, because people are often stupid. That's one of the things that actually happens in the film, that people just don't seem to understand. In the TV series. Yeah, sorry, in the TV series. That people don't seem to understand that Olaf is actually trying to get the children and that sort of stuff. Um, so they're stupid, you know, and that's not a bad thing. And sometimes people are deliberately evil too. And there are lots of events in the world that seem unfair and are the very least upsetting and it's a cure if you think about it a series like this is a cure for the sort of the rampant enthusiasm and the you can that you know is in most children's dramas so that sort of stuff is actually really kind of helpful so you reckon most movies and TV shows for kids are somewhat over enthusiastic about their enthusiasm and optimism about the world that we live in and how good people are and and just believe in yourself and let's all get together and why can't we all love each other etc etc and so the Baudelaire children actually have to confront real problems some of which that some kids might actually have to confront. The loss of a parent is not an unknown thing, okay? Or people who are actually uh, negative towards them deliberately. But the Baudelaire children get through it. Well, they've got some special abilities, but really they get through it because of their relationship with each other. They work with each other. It's love and their reliance on family that actually helps them overcome the negative things in their life. So they and don't really, that's not a bad model. They don't really turn to... Uh, kind of parent figures or adults for assistance they turn more within the three of them and rely on each other they find people that they can rely on but here's another truth in life those people might not always be around so they have to find within themselves a certain resilience and they find that resilience by saying hey loving community is more important than super individuals now that is something I want my kids to learn Mm. because it's not all about making yourself uh, the most resilient person to all problems. It's actually about mm. us together conquering things. Now, the Bible is very much about that. It's not about you going off and doing your own thing and you somehow triumphing and I should celebrate that. It's about all of us lifting the weak of us, weakest of us up so that we can actually draw closer to God. And I think that's a great thing. Well, the first season of a series of unfortunate events, that's eight one-hour episodes, is streaming now on Netflix. It stars Neil Patrick Harris, Melina Weissman, uh, Lewis Hines, and Presley Smith. It's rated PG and ready for your family right now. It's a TV series full of cool names. That's <laughs> loads of cool, cool names. It's okay. got one thing going for it, cool names. Now, true or false time, gentlemen, I can finally unveil to you the answer to what I posed to you before that review. So Neil Patrick Harris became to fame as his character Doogie Howser in this nine, 1990s sitcom. In 2008, he reprised the character for a famous brand's ad. So he was flogging a product. Was it Coke, Calvin Klein underwear, Old Spice deodorant, or Dunkin' Donuts? I want to say Calvin Klein underwear. 
I want to say Dunkin' Donuts. You'd both be wrong. Oh. Instead, C, he went for Ooh. Old Spice deodorants. Oh. Unbelievable. Where he basically spoofed his Doogie Howser character. <laughs> he said that he could recommend the product because he was a former make-believe doctor. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, coming up on the big picture, a girl power blast from the past, a new Australian drama about sexual abuse, and we speak with the director of one of 2017's most controversial movies, The Shack. Welcome back to the show to you, you, oh, and especially you. Well, thanks very much for joining us. We're actually up to the soundtrack segment. Your ears weren't deceiving you. Last break, Ben reminded us that Wonder Woman will be arriving this week. That's right. At cinemas from June 1, Wonder Woman. But it isn't the first time. You see, the first Wonder Woman premiered on the small screen in November 1975 in the form of two, oh, sorry, a two-hour pilot movie plus three seasons of TV. And I was there. You That's were there? That's I can say. Yep. Which is enough excuse for us to play this as our soundtrack segment. Now I'll stop dancing around the studio. Wonder Woman, the TV series, starred Linda Carter as the crime-fighting Amazonian princess living among mere mortals in Washington under the alias of Diana Prince. Carter infused her Amazonian princess with charm, grace and fortitude, something even a six-year-old Mark Hadley could respect. (laughs) Carter once said her character was a woman's woman, noting that you wanted to be her or be her best friend. No wonder you responded so well to her, Mark. It's it's a six-year-old Mark Hadley story. Um, I'm sure you walked into every room to the tune of Wonder Woman. That's such a funky theme song. Interestingly, the theme song is sung by a man and is meant to depict her strength. But interestingly, in 2015, now this I love this, Hallmark released a Wonder Woman Christmas ornament that looked exactly like Linda Carter and played the television theme too. Yeah, you could have your Christmas tree singing Wonder I know Woman. what I'm going to get you for Christmas this year. Finally. <laughs> Sometimes the world doesn't become truly aware of an issue until we see it in the cinema. Socially conscious productions like Steven Soderbergh's Traffic really brought home the destructive power of the drug trade to ruin whole families, for example. 
And Australia has its own examples. For many, the plight of the stolen generation became heartbreakingly clear when they watched Philip Noyce's uh, rabbit-proof fence. Mm, mm. Well, now a new Australian production called Don't Tell is hoping to harness the power of the big screen to help people really understand the sadness of institutional child abuse. Mark's been along to see it, and he discovered a story that is as distressing as it is spiritually challenging. If we go to trial, this becomes public. Every sordid detail in your life, from then until now, all of it will be under the microscope. You'll feel like you're the one on trial. Do you want to do it or not? She is too volatile to go to court, Steve. He said, don't tell. And that no one would believe me. Don't Tell is based on a powerful true story. So we should say it right up front. Sarah West plays Lyndall, a troubled woman in her 20s who's clearly acting out in all sorts of unsavoury ways because of the sexual abuse of a high school teacher. Now, supported by a local counsellor, played by Rachel Griffiths, a determined solicitor, Aidan Young, and a wily barrister, Jack Thompson, Lyndall finds the courage to speak out to the church, a school, and the unsympathetic staff who denied her abuse and deepened her suffering. That's a pretty big Australian cast, particularly Rachel Griffiths and, and Jack Thompson. I think mm. I've heard some other reasonable size Australian names are in this mm. as well. And Don't Tell, though, I think is on quite limited release around the place. And I reckon it's a movie that a lot of people haven't heard much about, Mark. You just said it's based on a true story. Where, where, which yeah, one? I think most people won't realise which story it's based on until kind of like 20 minutes into the film. And they go, ah, oh, it was that one. Right. See, you might recall, not because you heard about Lyndall, but because you heard about who got caught up in it. The abuse mm. took place at a private Anglican school in Toowoomba, and the court case took place in 2001. This is the story that ended up ruining Governor-General Peter Hollingworth. Okay, do you remember uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. there was that whole... He'd just been appointed by the Prime Minister John Howard, and he was forced to resign because of his lack of sympathy and understanding that he showed towards the people involved uh, when he was the former Anglican Archbishop of Brisbane. Mm. Okay, so this is the case behind that much more national crash and burn. Yes. Uh, to its credit, though, Don't Tell keeps its story focused on the staff at the school who are more concerned about the financial market and impact of Lyndall's claims. And so there's no real general generalizing taking place about the church is bad or Christians are bad, you know, or anything like that. It's really a, a, quite a focused story. For the last couple of years, or it's probably been been longer than that, the, the news has been often dominated by the Royal Commission into Sexual Abuse, which I'm sure would uh, would have included uh, this this case and, and sadly many, 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 many others. Um, I'm a person who most times I see it on the news like, like it's difficult to put into words how to feel mm. about what has happened to people, particularly in so-called Christian organizations and what what young people had to go through, all that kind of stuff. So don't tell, I'm not sure if I want to go see it or not, but I, I like the fact that someone's made a movie about this and wants to reveal the story behind it. Were you moved by the film? Given we've seen and heard so much mm. about sexual abuse cases in Australia particularly, did you find the film moving? See, this is the this is the interesting thing about Don't Tell. Um, and what I'm about to say is not terribly politically correct, but actually I wasn't moved by the film. And, no? And no, that's, and that's really? a bit sad because, as you say, the issue itself is very moving, but I think the film's got a few problems, you know, technically that basically undercut it. Uh, I'm, oh. st I'm still trying to work it out why. I mean, I'm not trying to say that I don't find the issue of abuse in schools both serious and desperately in need, you know, of coverage and, and our emotional involvement, but it could be that this material, for a start, might, will be very fresh to others, but it seems to me that Don't Tell wasn't telling us anything we didn't know. 
So as a story, uh, you do walk in there feeling like it's going to be A, B, C, and D. And yes, it is A, B, C, and D. And there are no surprises or any thoughts like that. But does there necessarily have to be a problem with that? Though? No. Particularly if it's based on a true story and it's being covered no, in the true, past. True, but even just the, the dynamics of good filmmaking yes. mean that you are going to rash, even if you know the story. Gosh, you know the story of King Arthur. You know the story of Beauty and the Beast. But the dynamics of storytelling is you've got to tell it in a way that actually keeps the audience engaged. Which would be difficult with this kind of subject matter, though, because you're walking that tightrope of being um, faithful to, and particularly sensitive to the material. That, yeah. And that's a, that's, a, that's a terribly, that's not the right word to use. But you're being sensitive to this person's story while, as you're saying, actually trying to create a movie about it that you hope will engage people. That's a, that's a difficult tightrope to walk. It is a very terrific uh, um yeah, terrible tightrope to work uh, mm. to walk, and to be honest, I don't think they did it terribly well. But it's not because the story itself isn't important or significant. It's like that the, just the scripting. They so telegraph the 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 clanging revelations that they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. That when they come, there's no impact. All oh, right, you know? and it's like yes. um, the, with Lindell's character. Okay, I feel like they got so caught up about not wanting to in any way make the victim look bad that they really undercut themselves. You see, Lindell's life um, is destroyed by this child abuse. Mm. And so she goes right off the rails. But instead of taking her right off the rails, okay, they want to go, oh no, they keep undercutting it and saying, well, she's still a nice person. There's all this stuff. So that when she comes to tell her story, you don't feel the impact of how much it damaged her. Right. So okay? she, well, she doesn't really feel like a real person. I feel like, I feel like in some degrees that... Um, they have handled this film with so such kid gloves that they've lost the story somewhere in between. And it's it's not that it's bad, it's just not the emotional impact that you would want to get, say, for, from a Holocaust film in order to understand the Holocaust, or Rabbit Proof Fence to understand the Stolen Generation. You're just not getting child abuse out of this one. Now, this mm. is a film that's clearly got a message behind it. Uh, Mark, what does it suggest we've got to learn from this whole thing, child abuse? Well, the lesson, mm. the key lesson, which is hammered again and again and again through the film, is pretty much in the title. Don't tell is what the the, the child abusers say. You know, you, no one will believe you, mm. or you'll get in trouble, and that sort of stuff. You should tell, and it's underlined in almost every scene. Oh, but go, you should actually tell. You, you actually yes. should tell. Yeah. So, um, and in fact, they've got a theme song written um, that under. under runs under the film about telling uh, and they they really do hit from the titles the opening titles they they take away the word don't and leave tell up on the screen so it's very clear what they want to say but it's very hard to work out who this film is for yeah, okay, who yeah. are they talking to because the content of the film particularly one very explicit sex scene that just isn't needed um, puts you in a situation where you go well I can't show this to anybody in high school you know, I, I would not have my children sit and watch this because it's handled that way. Yes. Okay, so yeah. I can't show them that. But then as for adults, well, I don't know. It, then it doesn't go realistic enough in order to actually sort of help you. Also, there's a point to be challenged. Um, there's this idea that you can't be healed unless you have your day in court, unless you have the chance to see justice done, unless there's reconciliation or punishment for all involved or something like that, that you just cannot move on. And that... I, I, as a Christian, it's just not true. Um, I, I love the the focus it gives, but the Bible promises that there is actually a way through these tragedies, even if you don't get your day in court. Uh, that God is sufficient to take care of our burdens and our anxieties, that he cares for you and he can bring you through. Uh, but the problem is that a film like this is just saying, unless you actually get your verdict, 
you then you won't be happy. And I think that will put people in a very difficult situation if they've suffered abuse. Don't Tell stars Jack Thompson, Rachel Griffiths, Aidan Young and Sarah West. It is rated M for mature themes. The sex scene that Mark was just referring to in coarse language. It opened on May 18, so it's now start airing at a cinema near you, but it is on limited release. So it's, it'll be at a limited cinema somewhere limitedly near you. Hmm. Yep. Coming up on the big picture, The Shack director Stuart Hazeldean speaks with us about bringing a controversial bestseller to the big screen. And Ben sets sail at the red carpet of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Welcome back. Well, The Shack opened at cinemas last Thursday, starring Australian Sam Worthington and Rada Mitchell. The Shack film was directed by British bloke Stuart Hazeldean. So for our press record segment this week, Ben spoke with Stuart about the hefty task of bringing a controversial Christian bestseller to the big screen. Did you go and search for The Shack or did The Shack search for you? I think it kind of searched for me in the sense that... um... It was, at the point that it was first offered to me, it was offered to me as a screenwriter to adapt it when the book was a sort of a 2 million selling hit rather than a 22 million selling phenomenon. I had just begun to hear about The Shack at the church that I attend and people have been talking about it, but I hadn't got around to reading it yet. I thought that the concept was great. You know, film is a visual medium and God is spirit, God is invisible. So it's very hard to represent God on film. And this was a great opportunity for God's all three persons of the Holy Trinity to be represented visually and sort of physically in such a way that a man can just have a chat with God and get ask questions and get answers. But it was a very uh, chatty, talky book, you know, dealing with a lot of theology, and I, I had a concern about how you turn that into a movie. But that was one of many reasons why I passed at the time. But then a few years later, big producer Gil Netta, who made Life of Pie and Blindside, he got the rights and, and developed a script. And I'm like, yeah, I, I heard of that. I was kind of offered that a couple of years ago. And he said, well, maybe you want to read my, my version of it. And I was really impressed with the state that the script was in. The first half was really working. Second half, still a little talky, but it was getting there and I could see the finish line. Everything you've just said doesn't strike me as suggesting that you felt under anxiety about taking on the shack, even though, among many other things, you would be depicting the Trinity, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, up on screen. Th- mm-hmm. That didn't cause you anxiety as a Christian. It would cause plenty of other Christians, like, all kinds of sleepless nights. There's two parts to that. There's the there's the general anxiety of the expectation uh, of the, the book readers on you, which I was very aware of. And then the other part of it is your own relationship with God, and you feel like you're doing God justice on screen. How did you go through that process yourself of not just approaching this project, but starting to put it into production, going into filming? How did you go with thinking, am I doing justice to God on screen? In general, I don't have a view of God that is God waiting for me to trip up, that he is constantly getting annoyed by every slightly wrong interpretation uh, of of him and and, and his view of us. I see a a lot of generosity in God and that God looks at the heart, not not the outside, not not the work, but at what our intentions are. I have a confidence that if he knows that I am earnestly seeking to to do him justice as much as I can, Mm. that that's good enough for him. That doesn't mean I, I, you know, don't value theological correctness, but I don't think it's the absolute most important thing. There's some theological controversy 
prophecies in the book about uh, how God is portrayed. There were definitely some things in the novel I wasn't sure if I agreed with. And I said to the author, Paul Young, a month or so before we shot, that I was making the film because I really believed that it put God's heart for his creations across very well. But whether it portrayed God's whole character, I honestly wasn't sure. Mm. And Paul kind of shrugged and said, that's cool, man, you're on a journey. So there was an element of a leap of faith. This is an important film to make. Um, And the things that you are sure about are so important that they outrank some of the things that you're a little concerned about. And then when I was in post-production, and I I ended up reading wider and deeper about theology than I have since I was a teenager. I kind of ended up after a lot of that reading coming to a place where I felt fairly confident in myself to say that I do think that the God of the shack represents God's whole character. What you've just shared with me there, Stuart, is that the kind of answer you would give to the many people, and you've been alluding to it, the many people that did not like the shack, and that's a polite word. Some people really hated on it and raged against it and all that kind of thing. What you're just sharing with me then is still the response that you would give to them? 100% yes. I think, you know, there's there there are criticisms that the God of the shack is too simple, but, you know, Jesus shrunk all the te- the the teachings of the Old Testament down to two commandments, love Lord your God with all your might and treat, you treat your neighbor the way that you would want to be treated yourself. So I don't think Jesus had a problem with simplicity uh, as long as it's rooted in love. And, you know, they also say, well, the God of the shack is too loving. Well, if you're going to err too much on one side of the fence or the other, I think I'd rather err towards a God who is too loving. You know, we say God is love, but then sometimes we, you know, when you unpack it, we're not really, uh, we don't mean it. (laughs) So um, uh, the question for me is, do I believe that the God of the shack is the same God that I see in Jesus? Uh, and I and I do. And you can listen to that interview again, actually, over on our website, thebigpicturewebsite.com.au. There's also loads of stuff over at one of our greatest supporters, Eternity Newspaper. Eternity Newspaper's website, eternitynews.com.au, has Ben's uh, interview with Lee Strobel as well. And, and that's a fantastic chance to look into another thoughtful film this year, which was The Case for Christ. Well, believe it or not, it was 14 years ago since Pirates of the Caribbean first made a splash at cinemas. Led by Johnny Depp's beloved Captain Jack Sparrow, the Pirates series has amassed enormous box office booty, or bounty even, Mm -hmm. uh, through pushing out four movie adventures of mixed results. And now, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, opened last week at cinemas, offering another blockbuster swashbuckle about dastardly deeds... High seas payback and the threat of death are... The dead have taken command of the sea. They're searching for a pearl, a girl, and a sparrow. I have heard stories of a mighty Spanish captain who has hunted and killed thousands of men. No, 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 men, no. No, 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 no. Pirates. Pirates. Now, normally at this point, we'd throw to a discussion of the film's main points, its worldview, mm. and what spiritual ideas, if any, it might reflect. Yeah, we do tend to do that here, yes. <laughs> that's, that's what the big picture's all about. But this week, we decided to try something a little different. Yeah. One of the perks... <laughs> the Pirates of the Airwaves. One of the perks <laughs> of being a film reviewer are the invites to the red carpet releases of a film, where you get a chance to not only see the feature, but the stars who turn out, and you get a sense of how the industry is going to welcome the new feature. So we thought we'd arm Ben with his own digital recorder and get him to bathe in all of that glitz and glamour on the red carpet scene. Does it go to his head? Does it affect his ability to provide a fearless review? You be the judge. 
It's a Tuesday night in downtown Sydney. Not just any Tuesday night. It's the Tuesday night after the Monday night when Tom Cruise was in Sydney attending the premiere of his new film, The Mummy, which is out next week at cinemas. But tonight, I'm here at Event Cinemas on George Street, right smack bang in the heart of Sydney for the premiere of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. This is the return of Captain Jack Sparrow. Haven't seen that bloke for a while. Jeffrey Rush as Captain Barbosa is back. I think Orlando Bloom, what's his character's name? Don't really remember. Because like a lot of people, haven't really thought about Pirates of the Caribbean movies for a while. But still holding out some hope that there might be some charm and entertainment and magic to happen up on screen when we finally get into the cinema. I'm walking through the foyer, you can hear all the noise around me. But what I haven't found at this premiere yet is a red carpet. It's not looking like it's one of those big, massive to-do premieres that you often get, like when Tom Cruise comes to town for The Mummy. No, as I walk towards the escalators up to the big cinema where I'm about to sit, all I'm really seeing is one Pirates of the Caribbean sign. Well, that's about it. No one's walking the plank. No one's got a peg leg. No one's even got a sword. I better go upstairs and see whether a red carpet is waiting for me. Up the escalators I go, still nothing red or carpety or necessarily piratey. I'm almost there and I look down the corridor and see not too many people. But I do see free popcorn. Sure, there aren't people in tuxedos, but there is free popcorn. I'm in the cinema, I've got my comfy seat, 3D glasses, free popcorn, free drink. What do I love about premieres? I love free popcorn, I love a free drink. Waiting for the movie, something I'm also waiting for is people and atmosphere. Strangely, for a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, a big, big blockbuster film this year, aren't that many people here. I wonder if that's indicating something about the film we're about to see. Maybe people are you know, still recovering from the fact Tom Cruise was in town last night. Well, it's moments after Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men Tell No Tales has premiered in Sydney. There was no red carpet. I've got a stomach full of popcorn, though. But this is that point as soon as you walk out of a film when you think, what did I think? What did I think? In short, not very much. Look, I haven't been that uh, struck by the last couple of Pirates of the Caribbean films, even though they made stacks and stacks of money. It was a massive surprise that they even dared to come back this time round. And Dead Men Tell No Tales doesn't really make a splash when it comes to story or visuals, new characters, new situations, all the kind of stuff that you want from a sequel to justify its existence never really comes to the fore. I think I've been most let down by the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise consistently by the character of Jack Sparrow because after the first film when Johnny Depp smashed it, ever since then struggled to find a reason to exist, a reason to come back. Even though this time around Jack Sparrow and some new younger characters are on the hunt for Poseidon's treasure? Poseidon's, what's that thing called? Tridents. See, it's moments after the film I'm even forgetting what the film was about. They're on the hunt for Poseidon's trident which is going to unlock every curse that the sea's ever held. But look, moments into this film you're not going to care what the film's about. It's so dark, it's so drab, surprisingly little jokes, and a lot of the circumstances and situations, special effects, as big and as impressive as they are, you've seen them all before. I think what Dead Men Tell No Tales is gonna leave me with, apart from thinking I just spent two hours and I'm not gonna get them back, is uh, there's a lot in the film about the, the contrast between science and supernatural belief. Can you believe in just what you see and what you can prove around you or can you actually go with what you don't really understand but might possibly be there? Sure, that's interesting. The other bit too is how the villain is pitched in this film. Javier Bardem does his best, tries very hard as this kind of ghost pirate hunter Salazar. Strangely, he's put in the villain role, even though he's the guy trying to rid the seas of 
the scum, the scourge that is pirates. And as the other Pirates films have done steadily, pirates remain the heroes. These bad guys and girls, these thieves of the sea, these professional scallywags constantly put up as the heroes that were apparently meant to be getting behind. And as, at least as this film would suggest, Dead Men Tell No Tales were meant to actually be getting behind so far that there might be another sequel, if you can believe it. All I can believe is it's late. There was no red carpet. I did get popcorn. I've been let down again by a Pirates of the Caribbean film, and I'm going to now go catch my train home like a landlubber. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, stars Johnny Depp, Jeffrey Rush, Brenton Thwaite, Javier Bardem, and Kaya Scott. Well, I'm not even going to attempt that last name. That's a really difficult last name. Scott Alario. There you go. And it's rated M for supernatural themes and violence. It opened nationally last Thursday. Coming up on The Big Picture, Tom Cruise and The Mummy are on the way. So we counted with Matt Russ Matthews and his mummies, plus mm. Ben's Top 5 Wonder Women. Time for Top 5. <laughs> <laughs> You've been saving that up. I'm going to get you your own theme song for that. that oh, really? Sh- you should walk yeah, But in it'll and- be done to the theme of Wonder Woman. That you should no, be dun, dun, No, dun, 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 no, I've just invented five. it. No, come on, let's move on. But that's the top five this week. Come but that on. would be very fitting if you were, were <laughs> doing, singing that to the theme of Wonder Woman that we played earlier in the show. And because Wonder Woman is coming to cinemas this week, we thought we would honour that by doing a list of the top five Wonder Women. Five. I hope I'm going to pronounce this right. Yushu Lien who was played by Michelle Yao in the 2000 film, 2000, year 2000 film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes, Yu yes, Shu yes. Lien. It's fantastic. Um, Honourable mentions at this point go to the Trinity character from the Matrix films or Princess Leia. But for my money, a Wonder Woman up on screen was Yu Shu Lien. Not only was she this kung fu maestro who could run on rooftops by defying gravity, she's also got a beating heart, gentlemen. Ah. She's a wonderful woman who can combine emotion and action. She can combine brain and brawn, tenderness and toughness. Quite the combination in a fighting woman. Duty. Duty. Who doesn't want a kung fu mistress guarding your honour? Exactly, exactly right. So Yu Shu Lien is my number five Wonder Woman. A year later, Monsters, Inc. was released, gentlemen, and a little girl <laughs> that you might like to call Boo showed up and let's, let's just say has lodged in our hearts ever since. Oh, yes. Lodged in your heart. And she is a Wonder Woman slash girl in, in my books. Like, think about what she actually did. And not only does she hold her own mm. in a world a universe full of monsters, she actually got them to be afraid of her. Yeah, And she's a little girl who couldn't really do anything apart from be ridiculously cute with those massive eyes and that kind of thing. (laughs) But she flipped the monsters universe on its head and made them terrified, even though she was being just completely delightful. You're so right. I know, right? She was so wonderful. She's so brave. (laughs) You're tearing up thinking about Boo. She's she's doing now. (laughs) She's a cartoon, people. That'll be a top five, I think. Top five things Boo could be doing right now. But let's move on. Three. In 1991, Jodie Foster won Best Actress for playing Clarice Starling in The Science of the Lambs. She was a Wonder Woman up on screen. She was an... She, she was she's a very intelligent, sophisticated, highly capable woman, but she was only I think a lot of people kind of forget this. She was only a cadet in the FBI mm. when she got like went up against Hannibal Lecter, thrown into the deep end. Who's one of the baddest <laughs> blokes that's ever been created ever and so memorably performed by uh, Anthony Hopkins. He continues to haunt the dreams of like people around the world, but Clarice Starling, FBI cadet 
went up against him. And effectively, this Wonder Woman was standing up in the face of evil, like right up against the face mask behind the bars. Mm -hmm. Behind the glass. Evil personified. And she didn't just like stand off with evil, but she conversed with evil. She was probed by evil, asked a lot of questions, like a lot of back and forth psychological gains, but she continued to fight evil at the same time and didn't give, give in to the evil that she was like up against. I think she's a wonderful woman up on screen. She was very vulnerable and wounded, yet she was mighty as, she, mm. as her skills grew at her FBI job. Number three, Wonder Woman. Great With choice. a bullet, Clarice Starling. Two. And now for something completely different. Sure. <laughs> Back in the early 1960s, 1964. Okay, pause, people. What we're going to do now is something that's probably <laughs> black and white and French. So if that offends you, please leave the room. Oh, Mark, how, how wrong you are. Instead, we're going to go to the Technicolor dreamland that is Mary Poppins. Oh, the Disney how version. Wrong how you wrong you are. Oh, la, la, how wrong you are. <laughs> Mary Poppins at number two on the Wonder Woman list. I um, shall take my spoonful of sugar. <laughs> exactly right. What can't Mary Poppins do? She can fly. She's got a bottomless travel bag that seems to have all kinds of stuff, including spoonfuls of sugar. She has tea parties on ceilings. She enters, just actually goes into chalk drawings and has a grand old time. Not just her, but she can take the kids as well. And she can even get kids to tidy their room or go to bed or take medicine. I think, and dance. Oh, yeah, dance? I forgot to mention that. And she can sing. Oh, my a treat. goodness. And she's friends with chimney sweeps. And she can mind children. Mind. 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 There was something about her with it. Maybe, maybe that was the sequel that I didn't see where <laughs> there was the, the children mind. We, we, we are being dead. We should not joke about Mary Poppins. No. She's number two on my Wonder Woman list because, my goodness, she was a wonderful woman. She and again, was. I repeat, was there nothing that she couldn't do? Well, who knows? One. Not to compete with, this has been quite the list, really. Like, I had, a, I had a lot of fun trying to pull this together. I was trying to avoid putting too many action women on this, mm. hence why Boo and Clarice Starling and Mary Poppins show up. But I couldn't go past for number one, the Sarah Connor character, oh. famously played by Linda Hamilton in the first few Terminator movies. Again, a special mention I should give at this point, that'll go to, more recently, Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games films or the character that Sigourney Weaver famously played in the Aliens franchise, Ripley, that Mark talked a lot about on the show last week, bigpicturewebsite.com to hear Mark's discussion of the Alien franchise. These were ordinary women, pretty much ordinary women, relatively ordinary women, put into extraordinary circumstances and, and they really had to kind of, for want of a better word, woman up and like take charge <laughs> and really go get it. And Sarah I, Connor... People are definitely going to be using that phrase That's right. Now. <laughs> okay. And I think Sarah Connor is the definition of woman up. Like she is like confronted with the fact that the future is coming to hunt her child. She doesn't only put her, her son first. She then goes out to try to destroy the future that's trying to destroy him. And the pain of watching a parent who knows their son's going to be killed but going out to try to stop him, I think is like one of the best things about the Terminator franchise. So... At number one, a big salute goes out to Sarah Connor, Wonder Woman. Well, it's been good to reflect on Wonder Woman, but that's all the time we have for the show this week. Aww. That's not so wonderful. Don't no, be so upset. So There's a show next week. There is. And coming up on next week's show, we'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the air with the release of Churchill. And speaking of beaches, gentlemen, somewhere a long way from Churchill, Baywatch is arriving <laughs> down under. Run in slow motion, please. Slow motion running? Well, that would have to be Wonder Woman. And another excuse to play the soundtrack. See you then. Again, I won't be a Wonder Woman. I'm just going to be Ben McKechnie. I'll still be Mark Hadley. 
The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 